Welcome to Opinion Has It. I'm Elmira Bayrosley. Last episode, we spoke with three scholars about the anniversary of the Tiananmen Square protests and how they marked a turning point for the Chinese Communist Party. In this episode, we speak with Leda Hong Fincher. She is the author of Betraying Big Brother, The Feminist Awakening in China. We talked to her about what she sees as the biggest threat to the Chinese Communist Party going forward, women. When Mao Zedong declared in 1968 that women hold up half the sky, many were taken aback. Women had been fighting for equal rights in the West, particularly in the United States, with what seemed like little result. No one expected such a progressive stance from the communist founder of the People's Republic. Authoritarians, it was widely believed, repress women. Fast forward to 2019, and China's attitude towards women has caught up with that conventional wisdom. Rather than seeing women as a key driver of economic advancement, China's leaders have been cracking down on the feminist movement. According to Leita, China's transition from a plan to a market-based economy and the breakneck economic growth that has ensued have fueled a backlash against women. As more and more Chinese prosper, the Communist Party has grown concerned that a more influential citizenry may threaten its grip on power, and assertive women seem to represent a special threat. Leita, you start your book, Betraying Big Brother, with an anecdote about a group called the Feminist Five. These feminist activists were arrested just before International Women's Day on March 8th in 2015, and they were protesting against sexual harassment and assault. Why were their protests so threatening? Well, that's an excellent question. Um, What happened was that it was actually a larger group of feminist activists in different cities in China. Um, who were all planning to hand out anti-sexual harassment stickers on subways and buses in various cities um, to celebrate International Women's Day. These women are singing on the Beijing subway to raise awareness against abuse and discrimination. But five of these women were detained recently for what authorities called picking quarrels. But they didn't even get to carry out that activity because uh, on the eve of International Women's Day, Chinese police in all of these different cities rounded up the feminist activists and held them for a day. So the initial um, arrests involved around 10 or maybe even more feminist activists. Um, But then after a day or two, the authorities focused on five young women and the women were in Beijing, Guangzhou, and Hangzhou. Um, the authorities brought all five women to the same detention center in Beijing. And um, it looked as though they were going to be criminally prosecuted for disturbing the social order. Um, so the authorities thought in jailing these five young women that it probably could prevent the development of a large-scale feminist movement in China, which would be seen as a real threat because the Communist Party sees any kind of nascent political opposition or or group that's capable of organizing independently of the party, um, it sees them as a threat. In jailing these five young women, um, the government actually lit a spark that uh, led to to an even stronger women's rights movement growing as a result because so many people were just outraged by it. 
It's interesting that you say that the Communist Party today in China sees feminists and the and the women's movement as a threat. That seems to be quite a shift from what we saw in the 1960s and the 70s, where particularly you heard Chairman Mao talk about women hold up half the sky. What accounts for this shift? Yeah, well, it's been a a, a slow but very profound change. Um, in Communist Party rhetoric and policy. So the People's Republic of China was founded in 1949 on the basis of gender equality. And um, even in the years leading up to that during the Communist Revolution, the Communist guerrillas held up this um, ideal of gender equality, the emancipation of women as a way to attract women into the revolution, to mobilize women. Um, it was really a rallying cry for the communist revolution. And then after the People's Republic was founded, um, gender equality was written into the constitution of this new communist nation, and the party assigned women jobs en masse in cities and in the countryside. So China had astronomically high rates of female labor force participation. But that was under the planned economy or the command economy. Um, with the onset of market reforms in the 80s, um, accelerating in the 90s and into the 2000s, a lot of that gender equality came undone. And there uh, began to be soaring levels of gender inequality. So along with China's so-called economic miracle with breakneck economic growth, inequality really soared as well. And uh, as a result, women's status relative to men fell across a wide range of criteria. I'd like to pick up on this thread about what you said about the economy, because we think about women's issues and we think about it purely through a gender lens. But what you're saying is that the Chinese are really thinking about this very much in a, in a more economic and political term. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. Uh, well, there's no question that market reforms and just unbridled economic growth created massive new forms of gender inequality. At the same time, I argue that it, it's also uh, been convenient for the Communist Party to push traditional gender norms. And that's related more to the survival, the political survival of the Communist Party, which is, after all, a dictatorship. So there, there are several different facets to this. One is that, of course, you know, the the Communist Party, which ruled over this command economy, used to assign everybody jobs, and everybody included women. And so under um, the Communist Party of the early years, the early decades, um, the everybody was poor. So there wasn't that much of a gender gap, because um, it, there still was. I mean, uh, even in the early days, as women uh, went to work full-time, either in factories or in the countryside, they also had to assume the double burden of taking care of babies, taking care of the household. Um, but then, uh, economically, women really lost out um, as a result of market reforms. But then there's another very complicated piece of this, which is 
how does the Communist Party maintain its political legitimacy, particularly uh, after the fall of the Soviet Union and the collapse of communism across Eastern Europe? I want to pick up on this frame of power and supremacy. Over the past year, we saw a number of Chinese professors being accused of harassment and assault. Um, A number of them were dismissed. A lot of them were not. And there was very much an uneven response to essentially the the Me Too movement. How do you account for this discrepancy? Well, first of all, if you look at the Me Too movement globally, you can see that, uh, okay, some powerful men have lost their jobs, but but there, but I would say the majority of these sexual predators have not really been harmed substantially. So what to me is really striking about the Me Too movement in China is the fact that it that it actually took off at all because China's environment, Um, is extremely hostile to any form of social movement organizing. And so the Me Too movement is also seen as a real threat by the Chinese government. Feminist activists in China fighting against sexual harassment and inequality operate, as you might imagine, in a culture of censorship. Protest and free speech is limited. And this helps to explain why the Me Too movement has been slower to make an impact. But over the past year, it has grown in prominence with a string of stories and accusations that have emerged from arenas as diverse as temples, universities and television talk shows. But in spite of that, in spite of these extreme barriers to a Me Too movement taking off um, in China, it still happened, which is extraordinary. So that means that um, these young women, largely women, but there are also um, young men who have joined in the Me Too movement in China, that they're extremely determined. Beijing's Beihang University became the first to dismiss a professor accused of sexually harassing students. His removal marked the beginning of the country's Me Too campaign. But students here say there's still a long way to go. So it's in that context that in it was largely around April um, in 2018 that there was this really big petition writing movement at dozens of universities in China where you had thousands and thousands of university students and recent graduates signing their real names, demanding that universities take sexual harassment and sexual violence seriously. So it's quite striking that because of this movement coming up from the grassroots, university students in particular, that um, universities and authorities felt that they had to respond in some way. And it's not just professors, there were other people, for example, a very, very high-ranking Buddhist abbot had to resign. One of the country's highest-ranking Buddhist monks has resigned after being accused of sexual misconduct by a number of nuns. The head of China's government-run Buddhist association stepped down in early August after a 95-page document accusing the monk of trying to coerce nuns into sex was leaked online. So Me Too in China has spilled over to other areas, but it is still kind of uh, at its most intense around universities. You talked about 
the lack of press freedom and the censorship on the internet, how do Chinese feminists organize then? Yeah, well, I mean, that's a really good question. These feminist activists are um, extremely uh, adaptive. They're always looking for ways to respond to changes in the Chinese authorities' um, efforts to wipe them out, basically. So, for example, um, with internet censorship, uh, the Me Too hashtag was heavily censored. There are waves of censorship, so there was never a complete blanket ban on the hashtag Me Too, um, but there was still very heavy censorship of it. And so one feminist came up with the idea of using emojis for me too, which sounds sounds like me too. It's in Chinese, but it means rice and bunny rabbit. And so she, she used the emoji for a rice bowl and bunny rabbit um, as a substitute for the hashtag me too. And that was a way to get around internet censorship for a while. But then the censors are very sophisticated and aggressive in China. And so, you know, they caught on to that after a while. But but um, the feminist activists have, have always been very creative and shown a lot of imagination and speed in adapting to whatever new tactic the government is using to try to, to keep them down or persecute them. One of the things that um, you've noted both in your book but then also in talks that you've given is that the Chinese feminist movement is not focused on toppling the Communist Party or the Communist State. It's really focused on trying to get rights for women, you know, stop sexual harassment, sexual assault. Um, so nothing about what they're doing is criticizing the current political order or is proposing a new one. So what does success look like for feminists in China? I, I think it's, it's almost a miracle that the women's rights movement is still around. Uh, almost four years after the jailing of the Feminist Five in 2015. Any social movement in China, particularly since 1989, when there was a massive uh, pro-democracy uprising that was crushed in the Tiananmen Massacre, any social movement has been crushed by the government, essentially. Um, The women's rights movement is proving to be much more resilient in many ways than than previous movements that we've seen. And I, I believe that, I mean, there are a lot of reasons for it. One of, one of the reasons is because they've taken up issues that resonate with millions and millions of women in the country. They're not saying we want to overthrow the Communist Party, which is not something that the vast majority of the Chinese population would agree with. They're saying that we should be free to walk around or take public transportation without being sexually harassed or assaulted. You know, we as women want to be treated the same or paid the same as our male colleagues. You know, we don't um, 
think that we should be discriminated against when we're applying to universities. There's also really blatant gender discrimination in a lot of university programs where women are often required to score higher on these university entrance exams than their male counterparts. So this is something that gender discrimination and sexual violence, um, these are problems that literally millions and millions of women deal with on a daily basis. So that in part explains the broad popular appeal of the women's rights movement. Um, and also it's not just about radical political activism. I mean, there are definitely more radical feminist activists at the core, but um, much more broadly speaking, there's just been a um, an increase in awareness among a critical mass of particularly urban educated young women all across China, where more and more of these young women are willing to speak out and demand equal treatment and demand, you know, justice. And so these are issues that have broad appeal. And the fact that um, the feminist activists, the most political and radical of them are, you know, they're not calling for um, something abstract. They're calling for something very concrete and that, you know, so many women can relate to. And, and men as well, by the way. All marginalized people um, can relate to that. We are here to say, as women, we're not taking it anymore. And I got one question for you ladies. Who run the world? <laughs> Who run the world? I want to widen the lens out for a moment and go beyond China, because we've seen the rise of strongmen across the globe in Turkey, Hungary, Poland, the Philippines, and the United States. One common denominator shared by all is misogyny. On the other hand, women are fighting back, leading to huge protests in places like the United States and Poland. How do you see this trend unfolding? Right. Um, well, I write a little bit about this in my book, Betraying Big Brother, because I, I focus on what I call China's patriarchal authoritarianism. But I really think that patriarchy underlies, is a central underpinning feature of all authoritarian regimes around the world. And we see the rise of authoritarianism, and, 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 and in the United States, this assault on our democratic institutions. And so much of it is based on uh, the subjugation of women, just keeping women to these very traditional subservient roles of being the wife and mother. It's really interesting to me to see the parallels. And if you look at any autocrat around the world, they're all misogynistic. Um, and then in the United States, you know, our own president actually explicitly says he admires these strong men, authoritarians, 
And he himself has been emboldening dictators around the world. And so I very strongly believe, after carefully looking at the dynamics of the feminist movement in China um, and how successful this women's rights movement has been in confounding the Chinese government, which is, after all, you know, the most powerful authoritarian government in the entire world. Um, and yet this, you know, uh, this authoritarian regime in China is, is really in a, 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 at a loss as to how to deal with the women's rights movement. I think that there's a lot of potential there for combating authoritarian regimes everywhere. And, and, it, and the answer, I strongly believe, lies in supporting women's rights, supporting gender equality, supporting grassroots feminist activists, increasing women's political participation at all levels. And we see in the United States as well with the recent midterms, you know, record numbers of women and people of color elected to the House of Representatives. It, it's absolutely imperative that feminism is a key, not just to promoting gender equality, you know, around the world, but it's also key to fighting authoritarianism and fascism. This is not just a dynamic in China. Um, it's, a, it's a fundamental defining feature of authoritarian control. What makes women so scary? Ah, yes. Well, I mean, as long as women are in their supposed proper roles, they're supposed to be dutiful wives and mothers, then they're not scary at all. What what makes them scary is when they step beyond those roles and they they want more. Um, I mean, they actually want to be real human beings with ambitions who want to be educated or they want power. They want to succeed. They want to compete with men. They want to be treated equally. They don't want to be treated, you know, as um, inferior citizens. That's when women become to be perceived as a threat. And that's certainly not unique to China. We see that everywhere, including in the United States. As we wrap up, I'd love to ask you this question. What gives you hope? Well, um, I derive a lot of hope um, from, from looking at these young women in China, these feminist activists who, um, you know, they're taking on this brutal government that is the most powerful authoritarian police state in the world. And it's not a democracy. And in fact, things are getting worse in China. The president, Xi Jinping, abolished presidential term limits. And so he's going to be ruler for life. Um, things are going backwards in China with regard to government policy. So these young women are fighting for their rights and for the rights of all women um, and marginalized people in China, and they have very little hope of realizing their goals within their lifetimes. I mean, there are no elections to look forward to in China. There's still very heavy censor censorship of the internet. There's, you know, there's no press freedom. And so, 
And yet they don't lose hope. They're, they're so determined. I mean, it's incredibly inspiring to me. And as grim as a lot of the news is coming out of China, and it's very, very grim on many levels. When I listen to these young women and these activists, um, and I look at how they, they lift each other up, you know, it's not as though one of them soldiers on forever and never takes a break. It's about a community of young women, young feminists, and building solidarity and caring for each other. And that nurtures their community and it nurtures and sustains the movement. And so there's a lot, um, I derive a lot of hope from that. And I, I think there's a lot to be learned from this community of young feminist activists in China. Thank you, Leda. Thank you so much for having me, Elmira. That was Leda Hong Fincher, author of Betraying Big Brother, The Feminist Awakening in China. And that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate and review our podcast, subscribe on your favorite listening app. Until next time, I'm Elmira Bayrosley.